Hey everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Ask Shane Anything. I'm Shane Satterfield, the founder of Sifted, and this show is a reward for those of you who pledge at $7 or more per month. However, everybody gets to watch the show. It is a Q&A and you guys do a great job of asking questions. Now, one advantage of pledging at that $7 or more per month at patreon.com sifted is that your questions get priority in the queue. And we have a ton of questions in the queue right now. If you head to sifted.net, there's a link in the header that you can click to go and ask questions. You better bring your A game because the questions are good. Let's get straight to them. Our first question comes from Jaylen. What do you think the outcome will be from your sister letting your 11-year-old nephew play violent video games? Okay, so you may be wondering what Jalen's talking about. In a recent episode of Game Face, I mentioned how my sister came to visit me here in Los Angeles. She was here for like 12 days or something like that. And she brought along my 11-year-old nephew and they stayed here at our place for a couple weeks. And I really got to hang out with them and get to know them. And it was amazing. I had a great time. Um, it was great to hang out with my sister again, really good to get to know my nephew, but one of the things that I mentioned about their visit was that there was a couple times where she went out with my wife to do some things and left my nephew here with me uh, while I was working, and while I was working, she basically just told him, like, just play Shane's video games while I'm gone, and that turned out to be, like, an all-day thing. And I started observing him playing games, and first of all, he gravitated towards the most violent games that I had in my libraries. Um, it was very interesting to see how the thumbnails had the power over him. Just what the thumbnail of the game was would attract him to it. For example, I mentioned that he played Atomic Heart. Not a very popular game. He probably had never even heard of it. But the thumbnail for the game looked like something he probably shouldn't be playing. Um, and I had asked her, you know, how does she feel about him playing violent games? And she's like, I just let him play because, and this is what a lot of parents say, because all his friends are doing it. I heard all the typical excuses that parents use when they let their kids play games that they probably shouldn't be playing, or at least um, games that their kids do not meet the ESRB requirements for. Um, I talked about how it was disturbing because he wasn't just playing violent games. He was he was being twisted playing the games. Like in Atomic Heart, every enemy he killed, he would dismember all four limbs off of, then chop the head off, and he just never got tired of doing it. Every enemy. He'd kill the enemy, he'd dismember the enemy, and then he'd chop off the head, and he'd stare at the blood coming out of it. To me, it was disturbing. I don't have kids. I've said this a million times. I try not to tell people how to be parents because I don't have a kid. So it's not fair for me to judge parents. I don't believe. Um, so I try to stay out of it. But you asked me this question, and I did bring it up beforehand. What do I think is going to happen to him? I think he'll be okay. Uh, as I said, when I talked about it, if we got him away from the games, he wasn't like a violent kid or erratic or anything like that. He's a good kid. Um, and he seemed to have a lot of the same interests other kids have. So um, I don't think that it'll have a long-term impact on him. At least I hope that it doesn't. Now, he is 11, and uh, one thing I picked up on is he is very impressionable. I would say like a turn of phrase or some saying that I learned from my dad or whatever. An hour later, he would repeat it. And a lot of times he'd use it in the wrong context. He didn't know what he was saying. It's just, you could just see how he absorbed things and then they instantly came out in who he was. And that's what made me nervous, was seeing how he was playing these games. 
he told me his favorite franchise was Grand Theft Auto. Like the last Grand Theft Auto came out a year after he was born. So I found that to be a little weird. And my guess is all his friends, that's just what they say. Because they know that GTA is supposed to be this violent game that they're not supposed to be playing. And it's like for street cred and things like that. I also had some people say to me, well, Shane, you've mentioned that you watched crazy horror movies when you were a kid. And that is absolutely true. However... Those horror movies were from, like, the late 70s and early 80s. Have you watched any of those? Like, the, the the blood is, like, ketchup. The effects look corny. It's like, it was almost like um almost like a joke to us. Like, we laughed at those movies when we watched them. And, like, there was um, a movie called 10,000 Maniacs. And we would laugh at these movies. Like, we didn't find them scary or gross or anything like that. It was, the movies were very tame compared to the games that are out today, and especially compared to the movies out today. And I know that because I watch them as an adult. And so that, I mean, Terrifier, that that movie franchise, compared to what we were watching, come on, there's no comparison there. So I do kind of understand that point, but ultimately it doesn't really hit home for me. So I do think he'll be okay. And the reason I think he'll be okay is because he has an awesome mom. Um, and I didn't really talk to her about the gaming stuff that much. Like when I asked her like what games they played, she kind of was like, she answered with like a questioning tone, like wanting me to give my feedback. And I just told her like, I think the ESRB ratings are there for a reason. Um, and I'm like, look, you're the parent. And I told her this like 20 times during the week. I'm not going to tell you how to raise your kid because I haven't raised kids. And so I just told her like, I think the ESRB ratings are there for a reason. I'm not alone. There's a, there's a reason that the ESRB ratings exist. Um, and I did tell her that a lot of the things she was saying are things that I hear commonly from parents who allow their kids to play violent games. But again, to get to your question, like he's, I wish he had more stimulus in his life because he's like me. He's growing up in a very rural area where he doesn't have a lot of friends around him. And if you do want to hang out with your friends, your parents have to like drive you there or you have to ride your bike like five miles to hang out. Like that's the way my childhood was. And I didn't like it. Like it sucked being so isolated. And that's my fear is that he's not getting enough of the person to person interaction. And most of his daily life is spent playing games like this. So I don't necessarily think the games are a danger as long as you have a well-balanced life. And I don't know that he does, and that scares me a little bit. Um, but generally, like, he's a good kid. He has a good heart. Um, again, when you get him away from the games, he's entirely different. So I do think he'll be okay. But I also think that kids like him who are raised in these rural areas or even if they live in, like, a city and they're just not getting a lot of person-to-person -person interaction, that's when I think violent video games can be dangerous. <laughs> Next up, we have a question from someone who gets a question in every episode of Ask Kane Anything, and of course, that is Kevin. With the rumors of the next Nintendo console intensifying, it would be interesting to hear your predictions on what the console will be like. Will it be similar to the Switch or something completely different? What would the next Nintendo console be like if you could decide? So Kevin is on it here, and everybody who uses Sifted is on it. <laughs> and that's the point of me building Sifted for you guys, is to create this place where you guys can come to it like for literally 90 seconds a day and know exactly what's going on in the games industry without having to hunt around on Twitter or go through a bunch of crappy videos on YouTube. It's good to see that it is working because Kevin has picked up on a couple stories we've curated over the last week, which is there are two different Chinese parts manufacturers who have announced officially in their financial reports that have happened over the last week that they are now supplying parts to, and they're trying to beat around the bush. They're saying stuff like, 
a console manufacturer that hasn't released a new console in quite a while. And if you look into that company's financials, they've worked with Nintendo since like the Wii. So what they're saying is that they are supplying parts for a console that will launch in early 2024. Could it be another iteration of Switch? It could be. It's more likely that it is the successor to Switch, whether it's a Switch 2 or whatever it ends up being. Now, your questions are, what are my predictions for what the console will be like? And now I'll say this, Nintendo, if there's one console manufacturer that's not afraid to surprise and go for the blue ocean, it's obviously Nintendo. It has been the bravest with its console releases throughout the history of the industry, let's be honest. Um, so, you know, what I'm about to say could be totally wrong, and I wouldn't be surprised. But I also think there's an obvious answer to this, and it is that the next Nintendo console is just Switch 2. It, it makes all the financial sense in the world for Nintendo to continue down the path that it's been on, which is having a console that is both a console, but also can be taken on the go as a handheld. And so with the money that Nintendo has made and the install base of Switch, which just destroys most of Nintendo's recent consoles, minus the Wii, which I think we can all agree is kind of an anomaly um, because it sold a ton of consoles, but the software didn't sell very well for it. It's the first time Nintendo has had a console and sold tons of software for it since probably the Super Nintendo. Um, so my guess is that Nintendo is going to play it safe for once in its storied history, and the next console is going to be a Switch 2. It'll be more powerful, maybe 4K, definitely 2K, maybe 4K? I really hope it is 4K. Um, at the very least, I hope Nintendo finds some kind of a technique to fake the 4K if it has to, kind of like how they did with the PlayStation 4 Pro with this checkerboarding technology. Um, so I would hope it could be 4K... I'll be honest with you, more likely it's 2K, because remember, if, again, they stick with the console handheld hybrid, this thing needs to be able to go on the go and function on its own without the battery dying in 40 minutes. So, I think that's the most likely scenario, but again, Nintendo can throw us curveballs, it has in the past, but I do think, if I had to put money down, I would say it's just going to be a Switch 2. Now, um, what would I do if I were Nintendo? Now, there's two different perspectives on this. There's if I am the president of Nintendo and all I care about is the bottom line, then absolutely, I'm just gonna make a Switch 2. It is the biggest no-brainer in the history of no-brainers if all you're concerned about is the bottom line. Now, some would argue that if Nintendo did do something different, that there is the opportunity there to sell even more than the Switch 2 would, but I'll be honest with you, like, is it really possible? Because... Nintendo has released innovative consoles in the past. I mean, I guess maybe you look at the Wii and you see what the Wii did. The software attachment to that console was low. And I think that's the problem that you run into when you create something specialized is it's more likely to be looked at as a toy versus a gaming console. And when you do that, people are like, this is this thing that I play with. And then I put it away and I don't think about it. And then I come back and I play the same, the same thing again. And the difference between a toy and a console is that with the toy, it's the same every time you interact with it. With a console, it's different. You're playing different games. But a lot of people bought the Wii. They got the pack in for Wii Sports. And that was all they ever got. They never bought a game for it. And that showed in the attach rate uh, for software for the Wii. So basically, if you're looking to make money, I think Switch 2 is a no-brainer. However, selfishly, what would I want from a Nintendo console? And this is just my pie-in-the-sky hopes. And 
I'll be honest with you, I never use my Switch as a handheld, like ever. There was a long time when I would go on trips back to the East Coast or to Europe or whatever, and I would take it with me, and ultimately I'd fly back, and on the way back, I'd be like, I never even turned this thing on the whole time I was gone. And part of that is because I am embedded so deeply in games that my vacations are vacations away from gaming. They need to be. I think they I think human beings need that reset particularly when you work in a field where you're so deep like I am with games. So um, the handheld element for Switch has no allure for me at all. So selfishly, and again, if I didn't care about the bottom line, I would just make the Nintendo console a beast. I would make it compete with the PlayStation 6 or whatever that you think the PlayStation 6 is going to be or whatever the next Xbox is going to be. I wouldn't reach parity with PS5 and Xbox series, I would go beyond. I would try to future-proof my console a little bit technology-wise. Now, I'm not a fool. I know that is never happening. That is the antithesis of what Nintendo does. And the only time it tried to do that with the GameCube, it did not end up well. And in all honesty, was the GameCube the most powerful? Maybe of those three consoles. There's an argument to be made between it and the OGX, but I don't know. It, it wasn't far and away the most powerful console. So the last time this really happened was probably the N64, but then the Dreamcast came along very quickly after that. It kind of would be blue ocean for Nintendo to do something like that because it never really has. It never has had clearly the most powerful console for an extended period of time. And so just selfishly, I want to play Nintendo's games in as high a fidelity as possible. The best graphics, the best sound, I don't care about the portability at all. So for me, pie in the sky, Nintendo creates a new controller, maybe some new type of input, but the base hardware is not a hybrid. It is just a console and it's the most powerful on the market. <laughs> Next up, we have a question from David. Tell us more stories about your trips to Japan. Have you been anywhere else in Asia? Well, I do have endless stories about Japan, literally endless stories. And I guess Maybe it might have been better if you had given me like an era of my career. Like tell me a story about going to Japan with X-Play and G4 or going there with game trailers or going there with GameSpot. Um, I guess for this story, and I'm guessing I'll eventually have share more um, as time goes on because you guys will keep asking. Is my guess. Um, I guess I'll talk about the first time I went. Um, this was in 2000. I had just started at GameSpot. Um about six months prior, five months prior, something like that, fresh out of college with a journalism degree. And again, I've, as I've said, I was running a website called Street Level Gaming for my last two years of college before I started working at GameSpot. But I'd only been at GameSpot for like five months or whatever. And I was very fortunate that they took me to Japan for Space World 2000. Um, and I went there with, let me see if I can remember who went on that trip. I know for one, it was Jeff Gersman. Jeff Gersman, Ricardo Torres... Ryan McDonald, and I can't remember the others that went. And I remember I had to share a room with Ricardo Torres, and we stayed at a hotel called the New Otani, which was in Shibuya, if I remember correctly. Um, and so first I just want to give props to Jeff Gersman because he showed me the ropes in Japan, not just while we were there, but before we went just talking to me about what it's like, what to expect, how the workload's going to work, all that kind of stuff. He prepared me for all of that. And I will be forever grateful to Jeff Gersman for that. He really showed me the ropes to Japan. And Ricardo wasn't bad either. He had a lot of contacts at Sega at the time. And he was a huge Sega fan back in the day. I don't know if he still is. Um, he had a bunch of contacts at Sega. 
and he had been to Japan at least once or twice before, and so I was staying in a room, sharing a room with him. He was a huge help, and the first thing I remember was, like, Jeff took us all out, and we all walked together as a group the first time we all went out, and I was just, like, blown away. I just... I can't even put into words, like, because in Shibuya, there's just this network of just stores and arcades, and this was in 2000, and so the Japanese arcade scene back then was still just kicking like a mule, man, like, all the arcades were packed, full of people playing fighting games, Um, and it was just amazing to have Jeff take me around that first night and show me all the different arcades, the big ones. This is where you can find Virtua Fighter. This is where the best Street Fighter players play, blah, blah, blah. It was incredible to have Jeff along for that. So after that first night, then it's like, okay, I showed you the ropes. Now it's on you to go out and do things on your own. And I remember the first night I went out, I got so lost. I got so lost. I was scared. Now you have to remember... This is pretty much before the age of cell phones. I actually did have a cell phone then. I had one of those uh, Nokia 5150s, which were like kind of the first iPhone, meaning it was the first cell phone that like everybody bought. Um, if anybody had a cell phone back then, they everyone had the Nokia 5150 or whatever the hell it was called. But I And I had that, but it did not work in Japan. And that, this is also before we had the foresight to book phones in Japan. So when we landed there, we got phones that worked there. Um, And so I had no way of like calling anyone, using GPS. There was no way to get back to my hotel. I couldn't speak the language. No one could understand me. There were no translation apps then. It was scary. Like for the first few hours, I didn't care. because I was like, this is awesome. Like I'm seeing the most incredible stuff I never dreamed I would see. And then like I realized I had no way to know how to get back. And I walked around in circles because it all looks the same. It's all restaurants, arcades, and electronic stores. And they just all look the same. And I walked around for hours and hours. And I kept, eventually I got desperate. And I just started going up to people and asking them if they spoke English. And I had taken with me a piece of stationery from the hotel, the new Otani. And I would just pull it out and show it to people. And like everyone would just be like, this, meaning I don't know, like, leave me alone. Finally, some person knew a little bit of English. And first of all, when I showed them that, their eyes went like this. They were like, oh my God, you're so far away from where you're trying to go. And basically the person was just like, just pointed in a direction and said, long way. (laughs) And so I just started walking in a direction. And eventually what jogged my memory was I found a, a train station that we had been walking to to go and do stuff in the city. And once I found that, I was able to slowly make my way back to the hotel. And it was the hugest sense of relief. I mean, it's scary. You're, I don't even know how many thousands of miles away Japan is from from LA. It's like a 12-hour flight from here. So my guess is, I don't know, 10,000 miles or something. You're that far away from home and you don't know anyone. You can't speak the language and you have no idea how to get, how to get back to where you're staying. It, it was pretty terrifying. And I was lost for hours. Like I had gone out to get dinner at like seven or eight o'clock. I didn't get back to my hotel until almost midnight. <laughs> so anyway, I got lost in Japan my first time there, but then we went to Space World 2000, and I've been talking about that lately on S-Chain and anything, so you know the rest of the story. It was an amazing trip, 
And again, thanks mostly to Jeff Gersman, who showed me the ropes. And then for next year's Space World, I went back because once they knew that I knew how to handle myself in Japan, they were more likely to send me there. And it became kind of this snowball that afforded me to go back to Japan over and over throughout my career. So that's another story from Japan. As to whether I've ever been anywhere else in Asia, I have not. And I would love to. Um, I would love to go to South Korea. I would love to go to, I, I mean... Literally, there's at least six or seven Asian countries that I have yet to visit that I would love to go to. So, haven't done much. I've gone to Japan a ton, but I have not ventured outside of Japan, unfortunately. Next up, we have a question from OTT Apps. When talking about AEW Fight Forever, you mentioned you had some interactions with TNA Wrestling while working at Spike TV. Do you have any memories or stories to share about your interactions with the people from TNA? Yes, I have tons of stories about working with the people from TNA. So I was vice president of content for Spike Digital Entertainment, which means I ran content across a whole network of websites. Game Trailers was one of them. Wiki Cheats was another one. Our side mission blog was another one. Spike.com was another one. Um, and Spike had its own content team. So we had blogs. It was basically a men's blog. And we had channels for like cars, girls, um, combat sports, so MMA, like UFC and wrestling. Um, we had traditional sports. We had music, movies and TV. And I had writers working on each one of those channels. So I managed a team of like, in addition to game trailers, I was also managing a team of like eight editors for Spike.com. And then another part of my job was also handling all the website and online digital promotion for Spike TV shows and award shows. So I had a weekly channel meeting where I sat with all the brass from Spike TV and talked about how we were going to promote the latest show that's coming up or whatever. And obviously, TNA was one of those shows, and that was weekly. A lot of the shows that Spike TV would launch, we'd put together a big plan, we'd execute it, and then the show would go away for nine months while they worked on the next season, and then the next season would roll in. But TNA was pretty much year-round. And so I had to keep up with what was going on in TNA 365 versus other shows where I didn't have to do it quite as much. So, yes, I was heavily involved with TNA, although I had somebody on my team who worked in New York who was dedicated 100% to TNA. And we also had a guy who was dedicated 100% to the UFC. And so those guys were really important to me as a manager because they really, they went to the events, they went to all the shoots, they were behind the scenes with the show teams. They were kind of my liaison between me, and more TNA than UFC. UFC stuff, Spike kind of mandated that I be involved in pretty much all of it because UFC was an, an important partner for Spike and they didn't want the people working for me to handle a lot of that stuff. They wanted me on the meetings with Dana White and the leads at UFC, whereas with TNA, they let my middleman handle it a little bit more. And the bigger reason why is because the TNA people were awesome. They were great, great people. Just incredibly humble, very hardworking. Um, every week in the channel meeting, the meeting I was talking about with all the bigwigs, they would come up with some new crazy awesome idea on how to get more traction for TNA. Because obviously our sites were set on the WWE. How do we topple the WWE? And they thought about it all the time. And so really my job was to listen to their ideas and try to figure out one, which ones we could do, and two, which ones I thought would actually bear some fruit and be worth doing. Um, and obviously my liaison, my middleman between me and TNA would help and would, you know, give me his guidance on what he thinks would work. He was a big wrestling fan, uh, which I thought was really important. But most importantly, like that organization was just class. Like I did go to a couple of their events and they treated me like gold. 
it was funny. Like, I go there and I felt like I was like a VIP. I'm like, let my guy who's been working with you give him the best seats. I'll sit in the nosebleeds or wherever. Like, he's the one who's busting his butt for you guys. So the first one, I went and sat down there. My boss told me that I should. He felt it was appropriate. The ones after that, I started giving the tickets to my guy who was actually working on TNA. So anyway, I went to a couple events. They treated me like gold. They treated everyone like gold. The wrestlers were great because everybody was trying to pull the rope in the same direction against the WWE. Um, everybody had a laser-focused goal, which was to chip away at the viewership of WWE and build up TNA. And it was really like um, it was like a seesaw. It was up and down, up and down. And a lot of that depended on the storylines and what was going on in the show. And that was an eye-opener for me. Like, I was never a big wrestling fan other than when I was a kid. And so it was interesting to see how the storylines affect the ebb and flow of the audience to watch that stuff. It's like a soap opera, really. <laughs> Next up, we have a question from Kev Masters. What are the factors that made you decide to take the leap of faith on working at Game Trailers over staying in your previous role at G4? In hindsight, Game Trailers worked out really well for you. I imagine it must not have been an easy decision to take that risk on what was essentially a startup. What gave you the confidence that you could rival the likes of IGN and GameSpot? This is a really good question and a really hard question to answer. Um, leaving G4 was the hardest decision I ever made in my career. Even harder than like digging up my roots and moving from Philadelphia all the way out to San Francisco to start my job at GameSpot. Leaving G4 was tough. And while I love my job and I love my work there, it was really the people um, that left the mark on me. It was hard to leave the people. But it got to a point there where I was spinning my wheels, I guess. Like, I had... I was the editorial director for the network, so I was like the middleman between the games industry and the network, and I would get like code and people to come and be on the shows and make sure if someone needed a game to cover, I got it for them. I was like, it was an okay gig, but I had done it for a really long time, and what I, where I was really spreading my wings was in TV production. Like That's what I started learning when I started working at Tech TV and then G4 that I hadn't been doing before, which was how to produce television, like cable-level, professional-level television. And that was what was exciting to me because I had been doing the games journalism stuff at that point for, I don't know, seven or eight years or something like that. Um, and so the TV angle of it was really appealing to me because I also knew, and it's crazy that I knew this back then, I also knew that probably the best long-term prospects for my career financially was to work in television and not work in games journalism because I could see what the salaries were in games journalism. I could see what I was able to pay our freelancers. I could see what everyone was getting paid at G4. And so I wanted to pursue more of an angle on television because I thought that would be better for my future. And so I did. Um, I really dove into the production of X-Play and I was kind of like the alternate showrunner if like our showrunner would be sick or would be on a hiatus or having a baby or whatever. I would be the showrunner for a lot of episodes. I would sit in and handle, I was basically the lead of the show off and on here and there. So I wanted to become the new showrunner when the showrunner left and I threw my hat in the ring to for the job and I didn't get it. <laughs> and the person who did get it, I felt was kind of incompetent. I had worked with the person for quite a while and I wasn't alone in that. A lot of people felt the person was incompetent who got the job. And so it wasn't just me who was a little confused by what was going on at G4 and the people who were being promoted versus the people who weren't being promoted. But at the same time, I still love my job and I really love the people that I worked with. And so I didn't even really pursue anything. I thought to myself, man, 
I don't know if this is a good long-term job here. I don't know if this, if I'm going to be long for this job or anyone is. The other thing, too, is that, like, while X-Play was doing great and having great ratings, the rest of the network was doing terrible. Like, terrible. So, um, I kind of started getting the idea that, you know, this may not last. I guess is the best way I could put it. Um, and then I was approached. I was headhunted by MTV for this job. Like, someone who I had met in the industry, just at events or whatever. And the way gaming events would work is you'd sit and see the game, and then they'd serve you lunch or whatever, and you sit at lunch. And that's when you would like figure out who the other game journalists were that you could relate to and you were gonna become friends with. And so I had a crew of 10 or 12 games journalists who were like my good friends, who we'd always hang out at events and things like that. And one of those people uh, met someone from MTV, and they're like, hey, you work in games, we're looking for somebody who can run our new gaming startup. And he, the first person he thought of was me. And so he came to me and he's like, hey, would you be interested in this? And I was like, hell yeah, because all the stuff that had just happened with G4, not getting the job and feeling like I kind of reached a dead end. I wasn't getting paid that much. Now I will say this, G4 did bump my salary up when I didn't get the showrunner job. Um, my boss came to me and he's like, you know, you're close. We almost gave the job to you, but we do feel like you deserve a bump. So I got a little bit of a raise and... I guess my title changed a little bit. They they put me on producing um, some specials for G4ia, which was the annual award show at G4. So I produced like this series of um, pre-shows to get people hyped for G4ia. And I had like a $300,000 budget and we got a shot maker and it was pretty awesome. And they were trying to keep me. So I don't want to completely disparage G4. Like they did take steps to try to keep me there. But... Once I started investigating this other job at this startup at MTV, one, the money was, like, way higher than what I was getting at G4. And, like, I know most people say, and I'll say this too, like, you know, just don't follow money because, you know, generally that's the road to doom. Um, in this case, like, I got such a good vibe from the people that I was talking with. And to be fair, I wasn't really talking to people like Brandon Jones, the people who actually founded Game Trailers. I was talking to John Slusser, the guy who funded Game Trailers. And he, I got a really good vibe from him. I mean, we hit it off really well. And so that part of it was good. The money was amazing. And I'm like, man, this is really hard to turn down. And so I started getting a little demanding and being like, look, if I take this job, I want X, Y, Z to happen. And John was like, done, no problem. Um, and he had promised me like, okay, this is your starting salary, which was way higher than what I was getting at G4. But also if you satisfactorily perform in the first six months at the job, we'll give you a big bump right away. And I was like, man, that's just too good to turn down. And I was like, if it doesn't work out, I can get another job somewhere. At that point in the industry, like everybody knew me, and I think people knew that I took things very seriously and did good work. And I wasn't in fear of finding another job like I might be now because I'm old and there's a lot of ageism in our industry. Back then, I was young, and ageism wouldn't affect me. Um, so I was like, if it doesn't work out, I'll just quit, and I'll find another job somewhere else. I really wasn't scared about it at all. And so that's why I went to Game Trailers. And once I got there, everything John Slusser had told me was true. Um, at six months, the, the place was blowing up. I did get that bump in pay. Um, he kept promoting me, kept improving my pay. Eventually, he's the one who promoted me to vice president over all the stuff at Spike Digital Entertainment. So, yeah, I did make the right move, but it could have been totally wrong. For example, the first day I went to work, he, I was like, where is, I had already earned, not an office at G4, but... I was on the verge of getting an office at G4 before I left. And I had mentioned this to him, and this is kind of petty, honestly. And I had mentioned it to John. You know, they they promoted me. They gave me a bump, and they're, they're about to give me an office. And 
I was like, well, I have an office here. And he's like, oh, absolutely you will. You'll have whatever you want. I said, just ask for anything and I'll give it to you. And so the first day I show up for work, I'm like, okay, where's my office? And he just pointed to a table pushed up against a wall. And I was like, uh, I'm like, I have to have like really important conversations with publishers that everybody can't hear. So how does that work? And he's like, well, for the time being, you're gonna have to go into the conference room. And so I did that for like two or three months. And then game trailers blew up so big that they just put us in a whole new area of the building where there were tons of offices and I got my office. So, and then the rest is history. Game trailers blew up, blah, blah, blah. And then YouTube killed it and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, that's why I made the decision to go over to game trailers. It was a good decision ultimately. Um, I ended up making a lot more money there than I would have made if I had stayed at G4. However, you know, still I would see the G4 folks out at events and it would make me a little sad. Like I miss working with those people. I had to build a whole staff from scratch. I did take a couple people from G4, um, but it, it just hurt because they were just good friends. Like, you know, we hung out all the time outside of work, like every night almost we would go to a bar or go get dinner or whatever together. So we were kind of like a family, it was hard to leave. And I think generally in anything like this, it's always the people uh, that leave the lasting mark and make these decisions the most difficult. All right, bonus question. We're gonna give you six questions for this episode of Ask Shane Anything, and this one comes from Commander Fett. What's your opinion on accessibility in games? I have an autistic son and he's been able to play a lot more games than he normally would be able to without those features. Do you think that it should be an industry standard and a game shouldn't be released if it doesn't have at least some basic accessibility features. I feel like this is similar to subtitles or descriptions in film. Is this an area where you think the government should regulate or the video games industry to regulate? Well, the first thing I'm gonna say is the industry should always regulate first. And that's what any smart industry does. It takes care of the problem before the problem bubbles up to the government. So once the government gets involved, like things get dicey. And so the best way to do it always, no matter the industry, is to find the issues yourself and fix them yourself before government intervention is required. Now to the, the rest of your question, first of all, it's awesome to hear that your autistic son can play more games. That is great. Um, I hope it's helping him develop and helping him in any way. Um, so that's awesome. Secondly, should it be mandated that all games have accessibility features? It's, it would be hard for me to see who would mandate that and how it would be enforced. So let's pretend like a lot of Nintendo's games don't have accessibility features. In fact, almost all of them don't have accessibility features. Who tells Nintendo that it can't release the game because it doesn't have the accessibility feature? The ESRB doesn't have that right. The ESA doesn't have that right. So it would have to be a self-policing thing. Almost something that the ESA puts out there as a spirit of the industry thing. We, we hope that you would join us in this endeavor. That's the messaging I think that you would use to try to get publishers on board to do it. Um, do I wish that it was a mandate? Yes, absolutely. I. I think every person like your son should be able to play video games. And I will say this too, like it is a rising part of game development. Most game developers, most game publishers now do make accessibility features, at least something that's going to be in all their games, no matter how meek or shallow they may be. So I'll be honest with you, Commander Fett, I think it's all headed this way organically. And I think it's gonna to get to the point where publishers like Nintendo are going to increasingly come under pressure to make changes to their games to have accessibility features. You already have Xbox with its accessibility controller. You have PlayStation with its accessibility controller. Where's Nintendo's? Nintendo is great at creating controllers. It should have been on the forefront of this movement, but it's not. So. 
I think over time, it's just going to become the way that it is. And I think the holdouts are going to look more and more like a sore thumb over time. And eventually, they will fall in line and they will get in line with the rest of the industry. So I wouldn't sweat it, Commander Fett. I think eventually your son is going to play, be able to play just about any video game that he wants to. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Ask Shane Anything. Once again, thanks for all the awesome questions. You guys knocked it out of the park once again. If you're interested in getting involved, head to sifted.net. There's a link right up in the header there that you can click. Go right to our forums and ask us a question. Again, I'll answer questions about anything, so don't be shy. Now, I will say this. If you're pledging at the $7 or more per month tier, which is the Ask Shane tier, your questions are more likely to appear in the show. However, everyone gets to watch the show and we will consider everyone's questions. So thanks again for all your support. We love all our patrons. Love you guys very much. I hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you for Game Face on Tuesday.